0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, so it's been a minute, all right, since we've been going through some sort of regular kind of Bible study. Not that unpacking elders and stuff like that wasn't a Bible study in its own right, but a little bit different different tact. So. We're going to go, if you remember, which I don't expect you to, but if you do, um, when we last left off, we had sent the children of Israel out into Babylon, and they were, they were there in exile and under, under captivity. And so now we're going to kind of begin a little bit of a transition to a new era, which is going to include some of the biblical prophets. Uh, we're going to finish up Ezekiel tonight. And then, uh, hopefully, and then in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at God's people after the temple. The temple's destroyed, obviously, and so what, what is, where does that leave God's people, and what are they going to be doing? So some of that is going to have us look at what life is like coming out of Babylon once they're released from Babylon. There's going to be some historical components to that, stuff that may or may not be in the Scriptures, but that we know is true from history. And, uh, and then getting them into the land and what that was like in that process and what their relationship with the Lord was like, that is going to lead us into um, a, a, a little section of this, which is, is going to be outside of, the, it's going to be in between, the Old Testament and the New Testament, where we don't have uh, they're not in the uh, 66 books, as it were. but what is that time period like for the Jews, but what that's going to do? is help us to understand what kind of world Jesus is coming into. Because we read about in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and you know, all these different groups that are around. And, and you, people you've heard of, but you just kind of take for granted, oh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, those are the bad guys, right? like you know, you just kind of, We just sort of pin that on them as the Gospels would happen. But in between the Testaments helps to set up that system of governance there in the promised land that will then get us into the New Testament world that Jesus is coming into. Right. So this time after the temple is going to then eventually segue into the New Testament time period where God is going to keep a lot of the promises that he made in the Old Testament. And so we're going to begin unpacking that. Uh, down that road will be not only just the New Testament church and things like that, but then um, uh, study of the end times, eschatology, revelation, that kind of stuff on Wednesday. So uh, if we don't get a crowd back for that, I don't know what we're going to do, you know. Uh, (laughs) So um, we're going to touch on a little bit of that tonight, but I want to just remind you of the last lesson that we had before we did the whole elders thing and that kind of thing. And it w- I, I taught this lesson, and the, the, the next week I was preparing to teach this lesson tonight, and then I got sick, and we didn't have it, and then we did elders after that, and it was, well, it was too late, I was just going to have to push it down the road. Okay, so here it is. Um, remember, pivotal to the study of the end times, which is, which is a branch of study we call eschatology, um, that study of the end times, is this debate around the timing of the millennium. Now when we say the word millennium, obviously you think of a thousand, right? But th- there's this time period that's kind of referred to in scripture as a thousand year reign of Christ. And there is and it's supposed to be a peaceful reign. It's a, it's a time where basically Christ reigns and it is peaceful. And then what we have done in the church is we've taken that thousand year time of peace and just fought about it since then, right? It's just been one debate after another, one big argument after another. But um, it's basically attempting to answer one question. Okay, here's the question. I've got it written down there for you so you can see it there in that first little review point. When do the scriptures say Christ will return in relation to the millennium? Does he return before the millennium? Does he return after the millennium? Does he return maybe, I don't know, during the millennium? I don't know anybody that says that, but basically that's the idea, is you're, you're trying to answer the question, when does Christ return? So when you hear the phrase or the word pre-millennial or post-millennial, that is the question it's answering. When does Christ return in relation to the millennium? Premillennialists say he's returning before the millennium. post say he's returning before. After the millennium. Okay. Now, there are typically those two ways of answering uh, this question that Christians give. Uh, One says Christ will return before the millennium, otherwise known as premillennialism. Others say Christ will return after the the millennium, otherwise known as postmillennialism. Now, believe it or not, how you answer that question... Says a lot about how you interpret pretty much everything else. And you have absolutely no idea. Right now, as you sit here, and, and we could open any book of the Bible and, and get to some, especially in the prophets, it's really hard. But you get to any passage in the prophets and read it, and the way you could interpret that passage, and the way you interpret it, I could probably tell you what you think about when Christ is returning. All right? So, uh, it, it, it informs so much of the way we think about it. Now, one answer to the question post, in the post-millennial camp that Christ is going to return after a peaceful reign, one g- subset of that is called amillennialism. So, I'm going to show you kind of a little breakdown of like how amillennials think about this. And there's a reason why, I'm, uh, why I want to talk about this for just a second. Um, amillennialists so po- postmillennialism says there is going to be a, the gospel is going to go forth across the world and it's going to spread like it has and it's going to continue to spread until enough of the world becomes so Christian that whole governments whole nations become essentially ruled by Christi- under Christian principles And at that point, that will usher in this thousand-year peaceful reign, and then, after that's over, Christ will return. That's what a post-millennialist would say. An amillennialist is like that, except that they would say the, the millennial reign of Christ and the current church age that we're in right now are happening at the same time. Okay? So, right now, going on right now, is a peaceful reign of Christ where essentially the premise is Satan is restrained from being able to keep the gospel from spreading. So the gospel will continue to spread around the world. It will continue to gain influence. And that is part of the peaceful reign of Christ. And that's what that millennium, millennial time is referring to. Now you'd say, well, why is it a thousand years when it's been 2,000 years already, right? So the, the idea is in the amillennial camp is that we, we, when is Christ going to return? Does, did Christ know when he was going to return? Did the apostles know when he was going to return? No. So we don't know. So the thousand years is meant to say it's going to be a, a chunk of time. It's going to be a long time. And God is going to determine that, that time frame. So amillennialists are saying it goes along at the same time. So if we were to look at this kind of, spelled out. We did this the last time we were together, but just to show you. This would be how it would be depicted. And, and here's, here's, what that, here's what that impacts when we talk about Christ's return. Is, obviously you have Oh, man! My little clicker pooped out on me. Let's see if this works. Oh, look at the dinky little laser beam. Can you see that? It's over on the cross. So here would be Christ's first coming, all right? Then we would have the church age and the millennial kingdom. So Christ is now reigning at the right hand of the Father. The gospel is going forth. It's being shared. We're not, the millennial reign in the amillennial camp is not going to be a, a time of peace like, um, like, like you might be thinking of like, uh, everybody's happy and perfect and wonderful, right? Um, it's, it's going to be a time where the gospel flourishes, okay? Okay, so the church age and millennial kingdom, and then essentially what happens is it ramps up to Christ's second coming. So for you, the, the person, if, you're, if you, the way that a millennial would understand this impacting you, the church member or the Christian, right, is that you are going to go about your life doing your normal Christian things, and then one day Christ is going to come back, and it's over. There's no, you're not going to sense. You're really probably not, in some sense, going to really feel this much, right? It's like a frog being boiled in, in in water, right? Not to use too crass of a term, but you you get the idea. It's a slow it's a slow boil, and to the point where, well, this is life. This is the only life I've known. Christians are martyred, da, 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 da. you know. It kind of, kind of goes on, and then. Christ returns. That's it. And, and so, what is it like for the unbeliever? Well, they're going about, they're uh, eating and drinking and getting married, and then all of a sudden, like in the days of Noah, they, uh, here it comes judgment on the world. And it's, it's, it's over like that, right? So, the amillennial is different in the sense that the postmillennial would say there's this ramp up, then there's a thousand years of peace, then there's Christ's return, then he goes away, and then he comes back again, and, and, it, and then it's over. The premillennial would say um, that there is Christ returns, there's a thousand years of peace, Christ goes away, Christ comes back, and so on and so forth. The amillennial goes, no, we're just going along, and then all of a sudden it's over. Period. Right? Does that make sense? Tracking with me so far? So that's kind of how... <laughs> 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 Perhaps boiling a frog in water was not the best example, but... Um, but that would, be, that would be the amillennial understanding of the ramp-up of persecution and the ramp-up of of uh, Antichrist and, and all of that is uh, there is a, a kind of a slow happening and then, you know, people may be wondering, is this the guy? Is this, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden the entire world is against Christianity and Christ returns and it's over. Um, so the, the reason I, uh, that that's important is because As we go into this, there is going to be uh, different ways that people interpret Ezekiel's temple. And there's no way of getting around that. Um, So I I could, it doesn't really serve you well if I stand up here and just sort of lay out all the opinions on, because we'd be here, one, we'd be here all night. and, And two, it's really difficult to understand this section of scripture. It really is. Uh, whether you take it one way or take it another, there's always objections you're going to have to answer. So one reason I want to lay that out is because when we talked last, I told you this is the position that I lean toward. I've held all of them at one point, all right, and I hold it all in times positions in an open hand. I could be convinced otherwise, but I'm most persuaded by this perspective on scripture. I think it makes the most sense, but uh, again, I recognize there are wide opinions around here and uh, varying degrees of the way people see this thing fleshing out. And so I'm okay with that. I just want to own that up front and say, that's going to inform the where, where I go with Ezekiel's temple tonight. And I'm going to hopefully be able to connect those dots. Okay. Everybody got that so far? All right. Um, sorry. I, I, de- I definitely don't want to bore you or overwhelm you or anything like that. But no, this is not okay. All right. Um, so if we're thinking about where Israel currently is in this whole, um, in, in the time of the deportation, when we get to the book of Ezekiel, essentially, uh, Israel has lost its temple and they obviously lost it during the Babylonian invasion. Remember the Babylonian invasion took place over really three successive campaigns. So they came in once 605. Then they came in again, 597. Then they came in again, finally, in 586 and wiped out what remained of Israel, essentially. And uh, so Ezekiel opens in uh, this vision of his temple in 40 to 48. And he opens this, uh, his, this vision with, uh, basically by saying that it was 20, in the 25th year of, of Israel's exile, and most likely, uh, we think that, is, that Ezekiel is probably counting 25 years from his exile, which was the second campaign, 597. So that would make this somewhere around 572. He has this vision of that God gives him of a temple. Okay, so when we look at that. This vision, which we're not going to go through verse by verse or anything like that. Um, There's typically, there's there's quite a bit, but I kind of, I want to boil them down to just two main lines of interpretation on Ezekiel's temple. Again, there are more than this, but these are probably the two simplest. One is that what Ezekiel is describing is a literal physical temple that will be built sometime in the future right? This is probably the one most people in this room are in by default. Um, that Ezekiel is describing a temple that is going to be built in the future, and, uh, and he's describing its, its measurements, how it's going to be laid out, and, you know, all kinds of different things, right? Uh, so that's one branch of, of thinking. If you are in the premillennial camp, or you have grown up in the premillennial camp, or maybe you still are, that's fine. Uh, that is probably going to be where you're going to go. And it is, is that? If you grew up in the dispensational camp, that is definitely going to be where you're going to go. Um, so the other, the second one is that God's, uh, this is a picture, Ezekiel's getting a vision of God's heavenly temple that would one day descend and be established on earth in a non-structural form in the end, meaning that there's we're not expecting a real physical building that's going to be built. But Ezekiel gets a vision of God's heavenly temple and the expectation is that that is going to descend but it's not gonna take the form of a building, all right? That I'm, that gets a little bit out here, I understand. So just, you know, we're gonna have to stretch our minds just a little bit, all right, to think about this. So. In general, when people interpret 40 to 48, again, there's many interpretations of it, but the two probably most prominent ones are run down those two lines. And they're going to see it as, this is, a, this is a God temple that is coming down, or this is a, a real physical building that we should expect to be built one day. All right. Now, I, I mean, I'm going to own, I'm coming from largely an amillennial camp, uh, I tend to see this as, a, as God's heavenly temple that would one day descend. So my time tonight is not going to be to debate with you, all right? <laughs> it's not. <laughs> we could debate all day if we want to, but we're not going to do that, all right? Uh, I'll be happy to answer questions about the view that I hold, but we're not going to debate about it. Uh, what I'm going to do is say why I lean that way why I think it, why I think that's it. I understand going into this, all right? Some of you have read Ezekiel 40 to 48. You got it memorized and everything and whatever. That's fine. And some of you have that, you know, it's going to be a literal building kind of in your, in your head. And there's all kinds of rebuttals that you can come at me with. That's fine. I get it. All right? I'm fine with that. But this is why I lean against it being not a real physical, uh, temple. First, is uh, the description right at the beginning kind of at least starts to clue me in uh, to what Ezekiel might be doing here. The first hints that the vision is not about a conventional conventional architectural structure. That is hard to say. Uh, Sounds good when you type it. And then when, you know, yeah. Um, Occur at the beginning in Ezekiel 41 verses 1 to 2, where God sets the prophet on a very high mountain in Israel and where on the south part of the mountain he sees a structure like a city. So he's, he's, in those first couple verses, there's some indications that what he's seeing is, uh, is he's making a description as sort of like a metaphor for what he's actually seeing, if you will. Um, so let's just read Ezekiel forty one to 2 and uh, you can at least kind of see what I'm saying. Um, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel. He set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. Okay. Um, So part of it is he tells you it's a structure like a city. That tends to mean it's not necessarily a city, right? That At least the way I'm, I'm reading it. Um, it seems likely then that the lack of real world geography, this would be a second reason why I'm kind of I'm in the first two verses already starting to go, what is this that you're about to tell me about? Uh, it seems likely that the lack of real world geography to match the location described by Ezekiel means that we're entering into the realm of symbolic geography. Um, we see something similar to this in Revelation 21.10. Now, notice what he says there in, um, in, in the first two verses, especially in verse 2. He's taken, we know he's in the land of Israel. Um, most likely, and I think every, regardless of which viewpoint you take on this, this is Jerusalem that he's at. In fact, we'll get some clues later on that he is in Jerusalem. And he's taken to a very high mountain, and on that mountain is the city. Um, so the city that he's going to describe, as we'll see in a minute, is basically the entire, the en- encompasses the entire size of the old city of Jerusalem, which encompasses much more than a, than a mountain, obviously. And, um, and so there's really not a geographical location that matches the description that he's giving to us. And I think that's okay. I think that's perfectly fine because I think the way he's telling it Gives us all the clues that we need. But that sort of clues me in that there's something different happening here in his description. He's telling me something different than just merely, here's a temple. Uh, And then look in Revelation 21.10. You see something very similar that John describes. And he says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So that sounds really familiar, right? That sounds... Exactly, like, John is borrowing Ezekiel's language, and I think he is. But um, but anyway, he's referring back to, to Ezekiel. I haven't lost anybody yet. Am I c- everybody okay? Is it, oh okay, we're good. All right, just checking in on you. It's okay. Yeah. Well, we <laughs> 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 Let me move the question. <laughs> All right. Uh, again, I'm not trying to overwhelm anybody or anything like that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so... In addition to that, so, so these, are all just, these are all reasons why I'm kind of leaning against a physical building that we're, we're, he's describing here. So those are the first two things. I recognize that those things are comparatively minor. I'm not hanging anything on that. If it was just those two things, I would say, eh, I mean, that, what is that? that? That could be easily explained. Okay, fine. All right. Now, maybe a little bit more. Chapters 1 and 8 in Ezekiel both open with a similar way to in a similar way to chapter 40. And there's really three big things that take place and a couple other things that are that are significant. One is that it, it has the same kind of formula that Ezekiel opens up with. So um, he gives a specific date on which the vision occurred. Um, he says that the hand of Yahweh came upon him. And then the third is that he sees visions. And so I want to just show you this, and you'll see this similar kind of formula that we saw at the beginning of of chapter 40. He says, In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, there's the specific day, as I was among the exiles in the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, "...in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there." All right, and then in 8, 1 to 3, it says, "...in the sixth year, the sixth month, the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man." Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put, on, he put out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of the head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy. Okay, so um, in in other words, there's there's this kind of similar pattern that Ezekiel opens up these three sections with. And I think that's significant because it's likely, and I think it's true, that he's doing the same thing in each one of them. He then gets a vision of something that takes place in heaven or or a heavenly picture. Um, And so in both the earlier visions, the one in chapter 1 and in chapter 8, the prophet is able to glimpse a part of a heavenly temple. And obviously in chapter 1, it, it's, it's really clear, because if you go on to read in chapter 1, he says the heavens were opened up and he saw. Like, so it's very clear that he sees um, four cherubim guarding this, you know, God's heavenly throne. And so he gets a glimpse of God's heavenly throne in, in the heavens. Um, now, the second one in chapter 8 is a little bit, more difficult to discern and the only reason being because in chapter 8 he gets this vision and for the time being he's talking about the you know the earthly temple but then he starts to get a glimpse of how this relates to God's glory in the heavenlies and so he starts to see what the sky and it's opened up above the the cherubim and so we'll see that in just a second but the, the climax of the vision of chapter eight in Ezekiel is in Ezekiel 11:22 to23, where the presence of God's heavenly sanctuary, formerly having extended down to the earthly holy of holies, finally departs back to heaven. So remember, in this little part of Ezekiel, and it's been Eon since we went through Ezekiel, so I don't necessarily expect you to remember, But in this little section in Ezekiel, what Ezekiel is dealing with and what God is basically telling him is that as the children of Israel were deported to Babylon, God's glory left the temple in Jerusalem. So this is a massive deal, and if you'll remember, when we went way back, when we went through 1 Kings, Solomon builds the temple, and what fills the temple? The glory of God. So that people can't even enter in because the glory of God is there. Go rewind the clocks all the way back to the tabernacle being built at the end of Exodus. That's how the book of Exodus ends. They build the tabernacle. God's glory fills the tabernacle. And mankind can't enter in because you can't, as we saw on Sunday, you can't just walk in willy-nilly to the glory of God, right? So that's the reason for the book of Leviticus is because you have to have a way of making atonement for your sin before you can ever, for one man once a year could ever enter into the presence of, of God. And so the, the concept that we have to understand that's really important is what is a tabernacle or temple? What is that supposed to be? You know, I'm, I'm asking, what, what is it? What. Okay, it's a dwelling place for... Okay? Now, we would also say, though, God is omnipresent. He cannot be contained by walls. Right? Right? And, and Paul would even tell us he does not live in a, something made by hands. You know? So, so, it's a dwelling place, but what does that mean? What does that mean for me? Yeah, it, it is a place to go to be in the presence of God. Now, that That temple is meant to be a reflection of God's heavenly throne room, as it were. Or you might say his heavenly temple. All right, we'll use the word throne room, but when I say God's heavenly temple, we're not used to that that phrase, right? But that's essentially what we mean the place where God dwells. And what the temple is for all of the Jews, essentially is and what the bible would affirm as we saw on sunday if the world is god's footstool then the temple is where his feet rest on the top of the ark of the covenant and that holy of holies that temple inside that that sanctuary there inside the temple is meant to emulate a heavenly throne room a heavenly temple as it were a place where God dwells, as James points out, it's a dwelling place of God. The reason the earthly temple becomes a dwelling place of God is not because He's contained there. it's because it mirrors the heavenly throne room, and therefore He, he dwells there as well. Are we making sense so far? So essentially what you've got, if we're going to put this in sci-fi terms, all right, or, or something that's a little bit relatable to us, it might be something like a portal. Into the heavenlies would be this sort of temple. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. So previously, the glory of God, which always dwells in his throne room, had extended down into this earthly temple where man could convene or enter into the heavenlies, into God's throne room there with God. And a high priest, could intercede on behalf of the nation there in God's throne room, as it were. You tracking so far? Okay. So what he's showing to Ezekiel is that where his glory had previously extended down, it no longer does. It goes up. So what Ezekiel is seeing is not just the earthly reflection of the throne room of God, but that his glory is leaving the earthly and going just going back to heaven. Okay? So that's Part of it. All right. Um, oh, go back. Hold on one second. I got a couple of scriptures to read. But then, when uh, so Ezekiel is is shown this, but then this presence of God returns to the earth, not to inhabit the structural temple, but to be an invisible sanctuary for the remnant of Israel. In exile. So look at Ezekiel eleven sixteen. 16. Um, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. So in other words, God, they may be outside of the land. Which is a big no-no, because if you're outside of the land, you're away from God, is the thinking. Because you're away from the temple, you're away from the throne room of God. Okay? But God, and God, though God's glory has been abstracted, has been removed from the earthly temple, He has visited them in exile. Which is a, that's sort of a foreign concept altogether, that God would go somewhere else, and be somewhere else in exile. But He has visited them, and He has been to them a sanctuary in, uh, in exile, but you can see this in 11, 22 and 23, the verse just prior to that. Um, it, you can see God packing up and his glory leaving. He says, then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them. And the glory of God of God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is out east of the city. That would be, uh, that would be where Jesus is going to stand next, which is a whole nother thing. We won't even get to tonight. Um, okay, so, so there's a, a couple of things we, we're, we're kind of already maybe starting to see that, that Ezekiel has been doing. Ezekiel has been getting a heavenly picture, one in eight all the way to 11, of the glory of God being removed from the earthly temple and going home, essentially. The other of the heavenly throne room where he's actually getting a glimpse of God's heavenly throne. That's back in chapter 1. So now what is he getting a, a picture of? Well, the clues that I'm, that I'm seeing here it, that this is doing is that it opens the same way these other two sections open where, where Ezekiel sees a vision and it's a heavenly vision and he sees something in the heavenlies, And so then he opens 40 with the same kind of formula which tells me that maybe he might be doing something different. All right. So now let's get down to some real evidence here. I think I skipped. Okay. So further evidence throughout 40 to 48 that Ezekiel is describing a bigger reality than merely a physical building to be built in the future are these, okay? First, he begins by describing a structure like a city and he ends the vision saying that the name of the city from that day shall be The Lord is there. Did it skip again? I don't know why it's doing that. I'm sorry. Um, In other words, what formerly was true of the Holy of Holies will one day be true of the entire city of Jerusalem. Let's look at 48-35. It says, The circumference of the city shall be 18000 cubits and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there so in other words what ezekiel eventually sees is the lord occupying this whatever this structure is that he's describing that he's been describing up to this point that it encompasses basically a square mile essentially on this this high place the entire city of jerusalem The entire city is going to be called the Lord is there, which is a way of describing the Holy of Holies, essentially. So what what Ezekiel is sort of laying out about this city, whether you think this is a real structure or whether you think this is a a kind of a spiritual uh, manifestation of of God's heavenly temple, um, the reality is that the entire place is going to be a Holy of Holies. Essentially, the entire city is a holy of holies, which plugs us in, I think, to a lot of stuff that's happening in Revelation, which we're going to see in just a second. So that, that's, that's one thing, that the entire city is going to be called the Lord is there. His, his presence will indwell the entire place. Um, the size of the temple city that Ezekiel is describing um, is... Um, Particularly striking in that it is approximately the same size, a little over one mile, as the boundaries of ancient Jerusalem. So the the massive expansion of the temple is quite similar to the picture that we see in Jeremiah 3.17, also in Ezekiel 43.7. I want to read these, um, Jeremiah 3.17. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, And all the nation shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. So basically what Jeremiah is saying is the entire city of that new Jerusalem will be the throne of God. So when when I said earlier this entire city is the Holy of Holies, that was exact that's exactly how the Holy of Holies is described as the throne of God. So essentially, this the Holy of Holies of the previous temple has now spread to the entire one mile city, right? Is that you tracking with me so far? Yes? Okay. I lost lost you. I mean, I'm to boring you. Are you sure? Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> I wouldn't blame you. I wouldn't be mad at you. Um, <laughs> Okay, all right. All right. Uh, so I saved some of the better ones for last. Okay, so I... All right. Uh, 40, Ezekiel 43, 7. So this is within that time where he's describing the, the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their whoring and by their dead bodies of their kings at their high places. So what is he saying about this new city, this new temple, whatever, that's going to be built, or that's going to be there in that one mile area, is not only is it called the Lord is there, not only is it reflecting His heavenly throne room, but He is going to occupy this place so totally that there is no unclean thing that could ever possibly come into it, right? Nothing could possibly invade this territory. Every idolater and all of that will be cast out completely to the uttermost, okay? Tracking so far? It seems to be what he's saying, okay. Um, Alright, next. It seems, by Ezekiel's description, that the radiation of God's glory from this temple will actually not just encompass this square mile, but will encompass the entire earth. So Ezekiel 43.2, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So you have a picture of this temple city coming down and taking up residence there in Jerusalem or whatever, and the glory of God is not just, it's not, it's not just that that city is his throne room. It's not just that that city contains his presence. His glory is now radiating around the earth. So this is a weapons-grade nuclear bomb that's so massive that we all are affected by it. All right, The fallout is... That is a good question. So Becky says for the first time we'll be able to look upon that glory. Let me answer that a little bit later. <laughs> How you like that? Uh, <laughs> uh, one very complicated thing at a time. Um, okay. Um, okay. The water that issues from the temple will turn salt water to fresh and provide life to every creature that touches it, again, this is just another reason why I think what he's describing here is something grander than merely a structure that's being built. Okay, so it grants life to every creature that touches it, and at, at the very least, what I think that means is that the it's a temple. If it is a physical structure that he's describing, it's a temple no mere man can build. All right, look at what he, the way he describes it. This is just part of this passage in forty. Seven, six, 12. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? <laughs> Check this out. Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, Every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything where, will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engeeti to In- Eneglam. E- Eneglam. Uh, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like. Fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Alright, so the water that issues forth from the temple, he clarifies there at the very end, uh, since it, it turns a lot of the salt water, leaves some, but turns a lot of the salt water to fresh. It also provides a, a living fish, obviously, of, of all kinds. It's going to be a land of plenty, is essentially what we're looking at. And as it flows from the, the sanctuary, the, it will produce... Uh, greenery and trees and the trees will always have fruit on them, right? And the leaves that the tree produces will be, will heal people, okay? Um, So it seems as though that is not necessarily a channel that men are digging from the temple. Go ahead. (laughs) Right, let's come back to that, okay? Uh, (laughs) Okay. One, one, one complicated thing at a time, all right? But you, you understand what it's discussing, what it's, what it's saying. So well, all, I'm, all my point is, is that I think Ezekiel is doing something here more than describing a physical building. I think he's describing something else entirely. Um, okay, so, and, and that's part of the reason, is that that seems like something no, no man, certainly no man can construct, and, and I'm open to the idea that it would be a physical building that God would build, um, but there's some other things that kind of lean against that. I think um, second or next, uh, the city is perfectly square. No one's saying you can't build perfectly square cities. Just think, it's part of an odd thing here. Uh, 48, 48, 16, and these these shall be its measurements. The north side 4,500 cubits. The south side 4,500 cubits. 45 and 45. Um, they seem to be very round numbers, obviously, uh, for a, a, reason, um, but the city is a perfectly square dimension. That's going to come back in just a second. I want to get to that in a little bit. Um, this is probably the biggest clincher for me, to be honest with you. All right, this next one. Okay. Um, again, I don't, I, I don't care if you go one way or the other, just, but I'm just saying this is probably the clincher for me. Um, the sacrifices in this temple are for the purposes of making atonement. You're like, wait a minute. That's maybe where most of you went. Uh, what? Uh, you read. You tell me. He says Ezekiel 45:15, and one sheep from every flock of two hundred for the watering places of Israel for grain offering, burnt offering, and peace offerings, to make atonement for them. Declares the Lord God. 45:17. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feast the new moons and the Sabbaths and all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement on behalf of the house of Israel. 4520 You shall do all the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance so you shall make atonement for the temple. Um, yeah, I mean there you go. So, uh, the purpose of the sacrifices in this temple, if this is a physical structure we're describing here, would be for making atonement. Now, some of you are going eyebrows up at that. Why? <laughs> okay, but Becky, you're getting to my camp now, by asking that question. She says, who is the prince? And that's a very, but you're coming over to the other side. All right. Uh, <laughs> when you say, but but why, is it, why is it that you would raise your eyebrows at the making of atonement and the restoring of sacrifices? Because in the future, where we're living, we've already been atoners and been atoners. Yes. And there are sacrifices are no longer needed. Yes. The book of Hebrews would be crying if we're returning back to sacrifices. Right? Okay. Um, I, I, obviously included there Jesus's statement to the woman at the well, hey, there's a day coming, God's worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth, um, which I think is, is one of many we could go to, basically the entire book of Hebrews could be cited there as also a reason. Okay, here's another, so if, so if, if that one is like, for me, it goes, uh, I don't think that's what Ezekiel is describing, is a, is a physical building that I'm expecting to be built, um. Then what is he describing? Well, I think it's helpful that the similarity. Oh wait, back up. I'll pause on that for just a second. In re- in regards to the uh, temple being used for sacrifice, anybody familiar with the Schofield Reference Bible? Okay, the Schofield Reference Bible was a Bible with study notes at the bottom done by C. I. Schofield, and those Schofield notes were basically a description of, or uh, uh, trying to help you understand what was in the text. That, those study notes were all from a dispensational worldview. They, they looked at the Bible through a dispensational lens. So when they come to the passage of Ezekiel 40 to 48, it, they're seeing it as a real physical structure. Schofield is. Alright, so this is actually stated in the original, I think this is the first edition, it may still be in there, but uh, one edition of the Schofield Bible in regards to this particular text of the, the making of atonement for the sacrifice. This is what it says. The reference to sacrifices in Ezekiel's temple prophecy is not to be taken literally in view of the putting away of, su- of such offerings, according to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, but is rather to be regarded as a presentation of the worship of redeemed Israel in her own land and in the millennial temple, using the terms with which Jews were familiar in Ezekiel's day. Okay. So, essentially, what that means is we take the interpretation of Ezekiel 40 to 48 as literally as possible, that this is an actual physical structure, until we can't. Up to a point where we can't. And then we have to say, oh, that's obviously, right? But this is a problem because you can't, but maybe I can. Maybe I can explain it, right? The line is different for everybody. This is the problem we get into with Revelation, too. This is a trouble we get into in Revelation. Where do you draw the line? Okay, some people will say you you interpret everything that happens in Revelation as, as literally as it's stated right there. But obviously when you get to dragons coming up out of the water, we don't interpret that literally, but some people do. Some people literally believe that there's a dragon coming up out of the water. And I don't think that's what John is describing at all. I don't even think that's what he means for your mind to go to. Okay? But the point is, the line of literal is different for everyone. And so Schofield is basically saying here, well, we can't do that one literally, obviously, because the book of Hebrews. And I'm saying, I don't, think John is, I don't think Ezekiel is describing a physical building here. I think he's getting a picture of God's heavenly throne room, his heavenly temple. And he's about to show you what's going to happen to that. Here's the reason why I think that. Because the similarities between the temple city described in Ezekiel 40 to 48 and the one described in Revelation 21 are striking. What happens in Revelation 21 and 22? You remember? It's the end of the book of Revelation, Satan, the beast, the false prophet, have been vanquished, they've been thrown into the lake of fire. God has now descended on earth, new heavens, new earth, the bride has been transformed. We are now dwelling with God forever. And John is going to describe that scene. And I want you to hear the parallels between the way John describes that scene and the way Ezekiel describes the temple. Um, Revelation 21.3. I just want to go through these. Right, we got a little bit of time. Just Let's go through these. Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. Uh, Ezekiel 43 7. Where did, I lost that one. Where did that one go? 43 7 was the previous one. Where is it? You got it? Ezekiel 43 7. He said to me, Son of man this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet and I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever and the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name neither they nor their kings by their whorings and their dead bodies, their kings and their high places he's, he's going to be their God and they will be his people okay, it gets, it gets progressively a little more parallel 21, 12 to 30, Revelation 21, 12 to 13 it had a great high wall with 12 gates and, the, and, and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates The names of the twelve tribes, the sons of Israel, were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. Where did he get that? Ezekiel 48, 31. Three gates. The gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi, the gates of the city, being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates. The gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, the gate of Dan. On the south side, again, three gates. The gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, the gate of Zebulun. On the west which, uh, on the west, which is to be 4,500 three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, the gate of Naphtali. Okay. Revelation twenty-one fifteen. Is that where we're at? Yeah, twenty-one fifteen. And the one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Ezekiel 40, 3 to 5 When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. So both depict the same kind of measuring process of the city. Revelation twenty-one twenty-three, and the city had no need for sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb, Ezekiel 43, 2, and 5. Um, I saw 43, 2 a minute ago. I know I included it. It jumped on me, I think. Yeah, 43, 2 is back on page 4. And behold, the glory of the of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound was like his coming. The sound of many waters. The earth shone with his glory. Now go back to forty three five. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Um, Revelation twenty two one to two. Then the angel showed me the river of li- uh, showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the and and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for, what were they for? The healing of the nations. Where did John get that? I think he got it straight from Ezekiel's temple. Um, again, Ezekiel four 47, 7 to 12, this is going to include some of the verses we already read, but it's going to go a little bit further. Um, no, I think this is all that we, we read before. Um, so, again, there at verse uh, t- 11 and tw- uh, 12. And on the banks and both sides of the river there go, grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Um, so, what, what is it that he is describing here? We'll look at uh, John seven thirty eight. This is Jesus standing in the temple on uh, a day of celebrating the festival of booths where they pour water from the pool of Siloam on top of the altar. And on the great day, the last day, where they pour seven pitchers of water on the altar, Jesus waits until that day and he says, Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what has happened in the New Testament and what Jesus is telling us is that God's people will become a temple. In other words, they will become a dwelling place for God. The reason why I think Ezekiel's temple is described as having waters that flow from it and that will uh, turn, fresh, turn salt water fresh and, and ha- provide all kinds of healing and things like that and, and trees and things like that whose leaves are for healing is precisely what Jesus is saying here is that when God inhabits His people, when He dwells with them, when He lives with them, out of their hearts, as Jesus is saying, will flow rivers of living water. And I think that's what is being described here. I think what's happening is Ezekiel's vision of an end times temple is describing the presence of God. So he's looking at the very throne room of God or the temple of God in the heavenlies. And he's describing that presence of God coming down to earth. So he's he's describing the heavenly throne room of God now coming down and occupying the entire globe. And so, how do you describe that? Well, he's describing the temple that he sees. It's reflective of the temple that he knows, but it's a perfect version of that temple that he knows. And it's the only language which a Jew could possibly describe God living with man is temple language. There's no other way you can describe that if you're a Jew in his era. It doesn't make sense for God to dwell with man and it not be in a temple. And so, what is he shown? He's not shown an earthly building that he is to construct or that somebody else is to construct, but that God himself has constructed. And it's not a physical building as though God could be contained by hands, it's the entire universe that he is going to occupy with his people. And he's going to so live with them that everything that he touches will turn to gold, in a sense. Everything that he touches will be purified. And every person that lives there will be in perfect harmony with the Lord. So what he's describing is that heavenly throne room now not existing out there somewhere where you can't see it, but existing in your very presence, here with you. God being your king. Christ being your king. No more elections. No more anything. But he's describing that coming down to earth, I think. The result of his heavenly temple presence with us is what? That his people will always dwell in unending joy. Look at what John says in Revelation 21, 3-5. As a result of this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That comes from Ezekiel. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. So I think what John, what, what Ezekiel is describing... Is the only thing that he could possibly fathom. God is showing him the only thing he could possibly fathom the dwelling place of God being with man, and that being a, a heavenly temple that's coming down out of heaven. John, this side of the cross, now sees exactly what Becky pointed out the, earlier. You, I guarantee if you, John was sitting right here, you'd say, okay, explain this whole sacrifice thing to me. He would go, the prince is Jesus. He's the only one, Ezekiel says, that can sit in the presence of God and eat the showbread. This prince is the one making the atonement. But what Ezekiel knows is it's a high priest making atonement. What John knows on this side of the cross is it's one high priest who made atonement for all. It happened one time, and that was it. And he now lives and intercedes for us at all times. Right? So does that make sense? So one's looking forward, and the other's looking back. And, a, and an illustration, if I, if I may. okay. Um, no more boiled frogs, I promise because uh, people will always ask, like, why, why would John be given a vision like this? It's hard. Why wouldn't he just tell him what's going to happen or, or whatever? Um, imagine this, this is not this illustration is not from me. I got this from someone else. so just bear with me. Uh, imagine that a father had a young son, and he told his son, "When you grow up, if you make good grades and you go to a good school, and you graduate and you get a good job, I will buy you a horse and buggy. This is the early 1900s, okay? I will buy you a horse and buggy. And he goes on to describe what the horse and buggy will look like. It'll be drawn by Clydesdales. They'll be big and strong and powerful. And the the wagon will be made of, you know, I don't know, cherry or something. I don't know, some really awesome wood and, you know, really pretty. And it'll be inlaid with gold and goes on to describe all of its details. So the kid grows up, goes to school, graduates with good grades, gets a good job, and now the automobile has come into, into in, you know, the world. And the father says, son, for graduation and for your job, here is an automobile as a fulfillment of the promise that he has said earlier. Now, is the son going to look at that and go, I was promised a horse and buggy? N- no. Nor would the kid, now that the automobile is there, expect the horse and buggy to come along. What, what the New Testament is teaching us is that the temple is the horse and buggy, right? It, it, there, it was some semblance of movement toward God, but it wasn't what it could be, right? It, it wasn't great. And, and even the author of Hebrews tells you that. The blood of bulls and goats could never atone for all your sin. Now that Christ has come, there is no going back. And, and what is being established in the New Testament, God dwelling with his people forever. This is not stopping short of the fulfillment of Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel looking at a horse and buggy because the same for the five-year-old kid that his dad tells him, I'm going to get you a horse and buggy. If the dad somehow knew that automobiles were just around the bend, maybe this is Henry Ford's kid all right, and he knows automobiles are coming, there's no way he could describe an automobile to a five-year-old who's only ever seen horse and buggy. absolutely no way he could do that. In fact, the kid might even see it as a shortcoming. You mean it's got no horses? You're trying to cheap out on me, Dad. You're not going to get any horses to pull this thing? How's it going to go? Well, it's got this gasoline thing, and it's got this all, you know, and you push the pedal, and it's going to be awesome. No way. So he's thinking, well, that would be short, but in reality, we know it's massively more than what was even promised. So, it, it, I I think that's how we should be looking at Old Testament prophecy: is through the lens of the cross, and it it doesn't make it; it doesn't nullify the promises that were made. It intensifies the promises that were made. Does that make some sense? Hopefully. All right. Now happy with questions, right? <laughs> it is 731, okay? Oh. So, this will be an ongoing series. We'll be talking about this for a while. Write down your questions, think about them, read them. We'll get to them over time, okay? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for a time to be in your Word. Um, grateful for help and... Um, more than anything we want to approach your word rightly and honor you as god and what your intention is in the words that you've put on the page more than anything else um i don't want my opinion to be right i don't want somebody else's opinion to be right i just want to be interpreting your word as you intended it to be interpreted so i pray that we have accomplished that to that end and And I pray that we as a church body would be able to accept one another when there are differences like these with texts that are very difficult for us as mere humans to wrap our mind around. So I pray that you would give us the grace to go forward accepting one another in our differences whether we come from premillennial backgrounds or postmillennial backgrounds or all-millennial backgrounds understanding that we are members of the body of Christ who more than anything want to see uh, Jesus return and restore, uh, put on earth his kingdom, and we want to live under his reign and in his presence. We want to be your people and you to be our God now and ever in the future, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.